Welcome to Earthshot Now, a podcast that is part of the nonprofit Earthshot, where we are inspiring people to take climate action through a positive vision of the future using cool, clean tech. The podcast is about people, places, tech, and climate change. I'm your host, Mark Bernstein. On our shows, I talk with people from different walks of life. We talk about what they do, how they got to where they are, and what climate change means to them. Everyone has a story to tell, and everyone's perspective on climate change is different as well. It doesn't matter whether their work has direct impact on the climate, or the changing climate will directly impact what they do, or maybe they just have a passion for inspiring others to take action. We all have a role to play. Before we go to our guest, it's time for a short segment I call Clean Tech is Cool. We spent decades trying to motivate people to take action on climate change. And yes, 20 years ago, clean tech was expensive and it didn't work too well. But that has changed. Clean tech is cheaper and better. And it is so cool. In this episode, there's a vampire on the loose. No need to barricade the house and stock up on garlic just yet. The vampire is already in your house. This vampire works entirely through your electrical outlets. The villain in question is vampire power, also known as standby power, phantom load in the UK, or wallworts and ghost load. What it means is the electricity that everything you plug into your wall uses, even if they're switched off. What do you think your cell phone charger does all day while it's plugged into the wall? It's not dancing around, but if it's warm, when you haven't had it plugged in for a while, when you haven't had your phone plugged in for a while, then it's been using electricity. Your rechargeable electric toothbrush does. But more importantly, your TV, cable box, game consoles, all continually draw power. In the United States alone, vampire power costs consumers more than $3 billion a year. Over time, televisions can actually consume more electricity during the hours they're not in use than the times you're actually using them. More and more of our appliances and products are smart in a sense that they can be connected to the internet. And to do that, they always need to be communicating. So they add to the vampire loads. And of course, our gaming consoles can be a vampire's best friend. Gaming companies have begun to take this seriously. They've been working to reduce the energy use of consoles and now making them out of recycled materials, all for the good. But what can we do now? Well, what most people say is just unplug them or get a power stripper to remember to turn it off. Really, who wants to do that? There is a tech solution, smart plugs and smart strips. There are strips that can monitor activity and when something controlled by a remote has not been used for a while, it turns it off. But even better are smart plugs and strips you can control with your phone. You can turn off lights, appliances and other things from your phone. You can turn them on again to warm up just before you use them, or even turn on your slow cooker so dinner is ready when you get home. And these can all be programmed. In a recent article from carbontrack.com, they listed 10 awesome things you can do with a smart plug. Here are a few. Of course, you can kill the vampire. You can switch appliances off from your phone when you're about to leave the house or go to sleep. Or you can schedule them to turn off when you know you won't be using them, or turn on just before using them and save power without even thinking about it. Or pretend to be a vampire and turn your home into a haunted house. 
your friend walks in the front door and all the lights go out. Ooh, then eerie waltz music starts playing from somewhere deep in the house. Next, the living room lanterns on, but only for a minute before switching off again. The music cuts and there's silence. A small floor heater turns on and blows hot air at their feet. And then the TV turns on with maximum volume. If your friend is still there at this point, then they have a really steely nerve. You know, you can also trick burglars into thinking you're home while you're gone for vacation. Not just those simple little timer things, but you can have lights go on and off in different parts of the house as if you're walking around. And you can optimize your charging stations and more. That is really cool. Now, while it's not quite a clean segue to our guest today, it does lead me to think about the role of gaming in impacting behavior, because maybe we can turn smart switches into games. And impacting behavior is just what we were doing at Earthshot. So to talk about that and related issues is my guest today, Jamar Graham. Jamar currently works with Unity Technologies and provides guidance on monetization that delivers high user satisfaction. Jamar says he wants to change the competitive relationship between users, creatives, and business to a unified culture of respect. Welcome, Jamar, to Earthshot Now. Thank you. Thank you for the great introduction. You're welcome. I'm really glad to have you here today. So before we hear about what you're doing now, perhaps you know you can give us some background on sort of how you became, became involved in the gaming industry. What led you to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, back in 2002, I uh, went to school at USC uh, for screenwriting. Um, so I learned a lot about the uh, art of making TV and movies, um, how to make characters, how to get uh, people to care about the art that you make. Um, and that led me um, into the entertainment industry, um, specifically video games. Um, I worked, I always loved technology and the combination of art and technology. So I worked in video games and a variety of companies, um, a variety of different tasks from uh, producing and designing, uh, helping out uh, the programmers uh, keep with their tasks and project management. Um, and eventually I made my way into mobile games, um, which at the time was a rising um, part of the gaming landscape. Um, and I saw it rise from, uh, from just kind of a fledgling um, idea all the way into now the powerhouse that it is now, where it is the biggest uh, segment of gaming um, and where the vast majority of people who play games um, now play it on their phones. Um, so I'm very excited to be working in this industry, helping people, um, you know, really uh, expand what the idea of games are and um, really making it more inclusive and something that can be enjoyed by everyone. Oh, that's cool. You know, I'm gonna, let's come back to the inclusive part a little bit later. But so talk about what you're actually doing today, which is monetization. What does that mean? Yeah. And, and sort of, you know, what is that all about when it comes to the gaming industry? So uh, as, a, as a plug for USC's uh, screenwriting, um, what I, one of the things I loved about uh, the courses that I took was that they made sure that the things that we were learning were business practical. Um, so um, they, of course, wanted us to be creative and to have art, but they wanted that art to be able to provide for us. So they uh, made sure that we knew um, how to structure a film so that it was the proper length, that it hit the um, beats that people wanted, that we were able to pitch it and we were able to market the idea behind it. Um, so from an early time, I really was interested in that kind of connection between business and uh, art um, because 
you really need both to be uh, able to subsist on the art that you make. Um, and so uh, in games, I really look at it the same way. Um, I help people who may know a lot about the art side of games, how to create visuals and experiences that are very good. And then I help to make sure that they're able to make a living from that. Um, so I do that uh, usually through advertising is my, my main means of uh, trying to figure out the best way to put in appropriate advertising. That is um, something that if not welcomed by the user, at least is tolerable, um, as well as uh, ways for people to create their game so that someone would like to spend money or if someone did already spend money that they felt like they had a, a it was a good use of their money and that they would be willing to do it again. So just really making sure that it's a, a good experience all around for everyone. So it's, it's basically the way for the gaming companies to be able to survive, yeah. um, but also give people a chance to kind of engage and, and be interested in playing the game. Yes, yes, absolutely. So yeah, it's really, um, it's trying to respect the fact that uh, the what you're creating is an art. Um, and it's something that is personal and passionate. But what you're also doing is trying to create a business of some sort, you, you want, to, want it to subsist on it. Um, and so what's that balance where you make sure that the art is respected, but you're still able to make something that's commercially viable. Um, that to me is very interesting. It's a thin line. Um, and it's something I like exploring. And so, so that leads to that um, part of your introduction, which you say you want to change the compatible relationship between users, creatives, and business. So explain that. Explain yeah. what the compatible relationship is and then why it's important to kind of connect that. Yeah, so I mean, I think traditionally you see people coming at it from like three very unique perspectives. And a lot of time it's based on just uh, the person's background and, and culture. So, you know, people who are from the business side, they tend to have evolved from the business side. They learned basic business um, protocols um, that could be applied to pretty much any uh, industry or commodity, um, not necessarily art. And so when they come to a piece of art, um, they tend to come with it with a commodity view. It, this is the same as selling pork. This is the same as selling a house. This is like, uh, I'm gonna sell this game. And so a lot of times the respect for that it's an art, um, that there is a certain level of uh, people putting in their own passion and heart that is put into this project um, needs to be respected um, and not just looking at the business. Um, from the creative side, it's very much different. People are only trying to express their uh, creativity. They oh, would only like to um, kind of put themselves out. But a lot of times when you put so much of yourself into it, you've made something that's really great for you, but not for everyone else. Uh, and so it might be the world's greatest thing for the artist, um, but very few people will be able to connect to it. And the people who are connecting it won't be able to find the value of being able to purchase it or, 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 or you know, help you out financially. Um, so a lot of times you have to kind of help them out there. And then finally, it's the users, um, us, uh, the, the, the people who, who use these products and art. Um, we, you know, in a perfect world, everything we would get is free. Um, and we would never have to pay for anything and everything we get is the world's greatest quality. Um, and so we already come combative that we would like to spend the least amount of money as possible. And we would like to uh, get everything we want for the least amount of work. And so um, it's really trying to um, help make sure that those users see the value in supporting art and supporting the people who are making the products um, and make sure that, you know, pretty much everyone respects each other and that um, there's an understanding that uh, your view is not the only correct view, that you do need to consider these other factors. 
That's really cool, you know, because I never really thought about that in the gaming concept because, I mean, that exists in the, in the conventional art world, right? Yeah. You have an artist, makes a picture. The gallery owner maybe really only cares about making the money and, you know, yeah. they don't, you know, and maybe they want to put it in a different frame or a different way than you as the artist. And then, you know, then there are the people who look at it and who's going to buy it and why are they buying it? Uh, and, and I get all that for that. And then it's just, yeah, I, I never really thought of um, until I got more into it that, you know, those, the people, the creatives, those who are making the games, actually it's art for them. Yeah, Not absolutely. just programming. Everybody thinks, okay, there's programmers sitting in their basement. They're making games. <laughs> right? uh, and the programming's art too. Let me, as, as I know of many multiple programmers, there's, there's a million ways to program something. And so really the path that you choose and the way that you express even a lines of code um, has a lot of personality to it. And as someone who reads a lot of programmer commenting inside the code, it's sometimes pretty hilarious. And uh, a lot of personality and, and passion gets put in just sometimes in the code where you can't even see it. Well, that's great. I mean, that's something people just don't think about. And, and so I think when people are playing games, they ought to kind of take a look at the art in there, look at what it take talk, took to make that. And I think about that when they're saying, oh, maybe I don't want to pay for this, but you know, somebody made it up. It's not just the big, big corporations. All the yeah. Time. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. I, I'm very much a person who I don't like thinking of things as corporations versus us. Um, because as someone who works with business people, I know business people make up the corporations and everyone, those corporations are made up different people with different things that motivate them, different things that get them up for the day. And um, really just trying to bring out, I don't know, I guess a part of my job is to bring out the best part of corporations and just kind of push <laughs> them towards uh, helping out people um, and kind of keep them away from their, their worst uh, tendencies. Um, <laughs> so in a way, that's, that's what I'm trying to do. Ah, that's pretty cool. Never really thought about that. Um, you mentioned before in your chatting about inclusivity. So before we actually move on to Earthshot and climate change stuff and behavioral change, uh, maybe you just want to mention something about inclusivity in both gaming and the gaming industry. And yeah, like it, it's actually something I find the most interesting about working in mobile games. Um, so uh, just uh, studies have come out. Um, if you were to ask someone, do you self-identify as a gamer? Um, what you'll usually do is have uh, most of those people be kind of males from 16 to 25 who would be more likely to say, I self-identify as a gamer. Um, but if you were to just define gamer as, are you someone who plays a game or two every day? Um, the vast majority are women between 45 to 65. Um, those are the by far the largest number of people who are games uh, gamers, even though they do not self-identify as. And um, a lot of that is just cultural. It's just the way that we were kind of raised. Um, and what uh, the great thing about mobile games are is that you can break down those barriers and you can go, okay, like we're not talking about this culture war of who's a gamer, who's not a gamer. Anyone who is, you know, who finds something that they find fun, that brings them joy in their life, um, and you enjoy it through the medium of the game, you are a gamer. We're here to embrace you. And we're here to kind of serve towards you. Um, I, I, my, one of my favorite moments in my life was I was walking in the Los Angeles uh, Public Library and I saw a row of four uh, people of different ages, but it was obvious from their appearance that they were either 
homeless or that they were not in a good uh, situation. But they were all playing a mobile game on their phone. Um, and it was they were using the free Wi-Fi and it was an absolutely free game. They did not have to spend money to. And you can see in their faces, they were engrossed, they were engaged, and they were very happy in that moment. And to me, that was a, the, kind of the best example of what I do, of I am able to bring kind of joy to someone in this in their moment, even if the rest of their life isn't going well, they can have this escape. And so um, that's kind of what I try to keep in my mind when I think about inclusivity is trying to give that experience to everyone. Um, to, regardless of who you are or you know your financial means everyone deserves a little bit of escapism a little bit of fun oh that's a great story uh, really great story so thanks for that uh, okay so let's move on to Urshat and thank you for being on our board uh, and, and 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 some of the reasons for your involvement there is around you know how can we use games to influence behavior um, yeah. get people to understand climate change and get people to take action. Um, and so it doesn't, initially doesn't have to be directly climate change, but you know, some examples of how, you know, the way you lay out a game or the way you deal with a game can influence the action of the user. Yeah, um, so to me, it's uh, some doing a, a game that has um, kind of a serious uh, uh, ideology behind it or something that's actually very important. Um, it's, it's always, uh, I think, the highest level of games that if you can teach someone something and you kind of help them become better people. Um, but even if you're not doing that, you're making any game, you're guiding behavior. And that's one of the great things about uh, games is that you're trying to teach someone how to do things and you have a variety of different tools that you use. Um, you can use it by rewarding people if they do some, an action that they, you like, you can reward them. If they do an action that you don't want them to do, you can uh, kind of provide guidance to them to do better um, and, you're, and you're pushing them forward so they can continue to play. Um, you want to challenge people so that they feel interested, but you want to make the challenges feel very doable and that you can eventually get it done so that people don't get frustrated. Um, it's really, um, it's teaching. All games are teaching, um, but not in the way of a classroom where there's a lot of pressure towards you. You kind of present it in a way that the most amount of people can just say, hey, this is a challenge that I can do. And that once I complete it, I feel like I've really helped out. Um, and it's, again, that's where the medium of games are. And that's why I think it fits really well um, with Earthshot because climate change and what you can do to like help is so daunting when you think of like how far along we are. We look at the data and you're, you know, it's really easy to throw up your hands. You're like, well, we've done too much. Like it's too far gone. There's nothing we can really do. Um, and if you look at a game at the beginning, you're like, well, this game's gonna take me 400 hours to get through. Um, and I'm gonna have to learn all these skills. That can seem really daunting as well. Um, and then what a game does is trying to narrows it down and goes, no, 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 no. Don't focus on the big picture. Look at this challenge. I will help you guide you through this next challenge. And when you do that challenge and you do well, I'm going to praise you and I'm going to give you the tools to be able to get a harder challenge, an increasingly harder challenge. You kind of guide a person through there. Um, and I feel that we, with our games um, that we're, we're hopefully we'll be making, um, can do that as well as really make it bite-sized to make it something that's doable, you know, not necessarily hitting someone over the head with the weightiness of it, but really just pushing someone along um, and guiding them along um, in the uh, in the journey and the challenges. So that's really interesting. Um, you also relayed one anecdote 
to me before about different buttons. So I want to talk about that one and then let's yes. come back to see if there's some concrete things we can, we can get at. Yes, yes. So uh, what you're referring to is uh, one of the cool things about my job is I get to look up things that I, I never thought I would look up. And one of the things I, I really love looking um, is behavioral economics. Um, so it's kind of really popularized by uh, Nobel Prize winner Richard Thaler and a lot of his work, um, but though there uh, were uh, two psychologists who did some work beforehand. Um, and really what behavioral economics is, is the intersection uh, between what a person's behavior is and how it relates to economics. Um, because we are not rational beings, there are a lot of things that cause us to do the actions that we do. And so the example that you're referring to um, was I was working on a game and at the end of the, the, the level, you could either press the button to continue on the level or you could watch an ad and repeat the level and give you a, a bit of easier time to, to, uh, to complete it. Um, Originally, both of those buttons were blue, but they had text that was white and that was very easy to read. Um, and uh, people were always clicking to continue on and no one was clicking on this ad. Um, and so there's a lot of theories about what we can do. Uh, maybe the ad isn't good enough. Maybe we can make the button way bigger. Maybe we can do blah, blah, blah. Um, one of the things I suggested because I had seen this in psychology uh, books is changing color. Um, and so uh, instead of just having two blue, blue buttons, the button to continue um, was blue, but the button to watch the ad, I made orange, which is a very vibrant, bright orange. It's exciting. Blue is a very cool color. Well, orange is like, oh, what is that? It kind of gets me excited and want to look at it. Um, so we made that change. And um, because I do a lot of data, uh, we could see that there was a 60% increase in people who were clicking on the orange button. Um, then they were clicking before on the blue button. There's a lot of theories. Could be that's easier to read because the orange is, is more exciting. But what I appreciated was we had all these expensive ideas of how to fix things. Changing the color was changing one line of code and just a couple heck, uh, of, uh, of digits. Um, so it was something that was very simple, very easy to do and showed that to change behavior, you could do really small things. Um, my, my second favorite example of that, um, I think Richard Thaler says in, in his book, um, is the uh, men's urinal. If you look uh, in the men's urinal, this is kind of an interesting story. Um, there's a big problem with men's urinals where they're, um, there's spillage. P things uh, spill on the outside and it takes a really lot of time for people to kind of uh, clean it up and it's just a lot of man hours put into it. Um, one of the things they find out is that if you were to imprint an image of anything, um, usually like a bug onto the urinal where you want people to aim, no other context, people will aim at it because they will look at this white urinal and they'll see like, oh, there's a bug or there's like a logo or something there. And, and your natural in, uh, indication was to aim at it. And so what they found is when they do that, hey, the spillage goes down a whole bunch um, and it's much easier to clean and much uh, easier to keep sanitary. Um, so that is also another, you know, if you're, if you're a man, check out your urinal. You'll, you'll see a lot, oftentimes a little, little bug or something that's there. I that's really did always fun. wonder why that was there yeah, uh, yeah. in ones I've seen. <laughs> that's a really cool example. Uh, so how can we, and I know you've been thinking about this. So what are the types of things you think we can add into games or, you know, you know, as with Earthshot, we're trying to do this sort of positive vision of a clean tech, positive future. And, and, and get people more optimistic and doing things about it. Are there some kind of mm -hmm. off the top of your head ideas that make sense? Yeah. 
Yeah, um, so I think it just really depends on what the genre is and what you're looking at. But uh, for example, if you are making uh, a like uh, a game about cars, um, your cars that are the fastest and the coolest, they could be clean tech cars. Um, those are the ones, and so that so users progress and crew and they're trying to get the best cars, they will subconsciously go associate, oh, okay, well, these cars that go the fastest and have the least amount of gas and I can do the best are clean tech cars. So in real life, when they see them, they'll have that positive association with them. Um, when you are uh, you know, playing a, a game and there's a villain, you can have the villain have a lot of the features of someone who is not you know, very conscious about the earth and, and does a lot of uh, things that are kind of you know, not, not right towards, uh, towards that. And then the hero can kind of embrace a lot of the, the positive things. You've seen the hero recycle. You see the, the hero take the time to turn off lights when they, when they leave. These are really small things that you can just put into the background. You don't have to beat someone head over the head, but those positive associations will come. Uh, much in the same way to fight smoking. Now, people you see smoking are the bad guys. Like, so you kind of subconsciously get, okay, this is not like a good person thing to do. Um, so those are kind of the, the first two examples that pop in my head. Oh, those are great. Really good ideas. And then I can also see that as we, you know, using your example of the colors and the buttons is that, you know, when we're trying to show off some of the cooler stuff, making sure that they're more vibrant. And, yeah, and, and... definitely. You want to make sure they're vibrant, they stand out. Um, and there's many ways to, to make things stand, stand out. You can do color, you can do audio cues, um, size. Um, if you want to make something seem that it's big and grand, you want to make the physical size bigger and the comparison size smaller. Um, so many great tools that we can do um, just to push people in the, in the direction towards uh, clean tech and, and uh, positive climate change. That's great. And as we move forward and, and you're going to help us as we think through, okay, with, then what's some of the messaging that comes out? And I'm looking forward to continuing to work with you on that. So there are a couple of things that I do um, asking everybody. Um, uh, one is a fun fact. Um, you already gave me one, but do you have another? <laughs> You have another fun fact that you'd like to share with everybody? Um, yeah, fun facts are, uh, yeah, no, um, it's hard for me to think of like a, a, a part of fact. I guess one thing, I really like investigation discovery and kind of crime stories. And one of the things I think is the most interesting is the biggest embezzlement crime in America um, was not pulled off by a team of people and it was not pulled off in a big city. It was pulled off in a small town in Indiana by one woman uh, who was able to embezzle $68 million from her town over the course of 20 years. And she put most of that into her competitive horse uh, uh, business. Um, and she would just buy all these horses and things. And um, because she was the sole treasurer of the town and she was the person who picked the auditors, uh, she was able to get away with it for, for decades on. So uh, please look her up. I believe her name is Rebecca something. Rita, no, Rita Conwell. Rita Conwell. Please look her up. There's like a documentary on YouTube. It's very, very interesting. Um, but you, I think it's, uh, it's, it really shows uh, you got to keep an eye on, on, on people. You can't, you can't put too much trust. I always have uh, some extra say, uh, fallbacks. Yeah, it's not always the person that looks like the crook. It's you know? not. No, it's, it's actually it's often not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rita, Rita, yeah. Rita Conwell. Very, very Rita interesting Crenwell. person. <laughs> That's cool. Um, okay, and then lastly, a climate challenge. 
Do you have a climate yeah. challenge you want to give to people? You know what? There's a, uh, for me, um, one of the things I really enjoy is the work of Andrew Zimmern, um, who's a, a chef. And one of the things he pushes is um, protein and food diversity. Um, it's something I really uh, I care a lot about. Um, really push yourself, um, my challenge is push yourself away from just chicken, fish, and beef. There's more foods out there. Um, there are, you know, there's uh, sustainable uh, fishing methods that are out there. There's sustainable uh, game that's out there. There's insects. There's a variety of plant-based proteins that are expanding by the uh, by the millions. Um, personally, you know, Apostle Burger and Beyond uh, Meat Burgers. Um, there's so many great foods that are out there, and I think um, if we as a people were just to expand what we ate, um, we would, you know, decrease the size of these big agricultural farms that are doing so much harm to the world, and we would be able to help uh, farmers, uh, especially small farmers um, who are making these kind of niche products and help them grow. Um, it's just so many positive uh, things that happen when we just push ourselves past the same three meats and we, we try to eat more things. So definitely protein diversity, food diversity um, is my challenge out there. Please try something new that you've never tried before. Um, if you cook it well, it's gonna taste delicious. Oh, that's a terrific one. Can you repeat the chef's name? Yes, Andrew Zimmern. Um, he is famous on the Travel Channel for making a show called Rizar Foods um, and some other delicious uh, uh, foods. Uh, he's literally a great person uh, who out there helping people across the world and uh, is very much into expanding what we eat, expanding what we define as food. Great. I will uh, I'll check him out. That's great. So thank you for joining us today, Jamar. Oh, yeah. No, my pleasure. I also want to thank Dustin Chang for producing our podcast, Nikhil Jain for supporting the development of the podcast, and our listeners for tuning in. Please follow Earthshot on Twitter at EarthshotG and LinkedIn at Earthshot. Let us know about new cool clean tech you've seen that you'd like us to highlight, and feel free to comment and suggest future guests. For everyone at Earthshot and Earthshot Now, thanks for listening, and remember, clean tech is cool. Thank you, Jamar.